All right, everybody, welcome back. Welcome back. This is episode 50 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kimbui Bomani, and for this special 5-0 episode, we have a guest named Anaya Jones. But before we dive into who Anaya is and what she's about, I want to give a shout out to my supporters on Independent Intel. I have 1,942 downloads from 49 episodes as we head to episode 50, 649 IG followers on the Independent Intel Podcast IG page. So I've been grateful for everybody during this journey. Started the podcast two years ago during the heat of the pandemic and to see it grow and evolve from then until now is amazing. And I've had a variety of guests really from episode 15 on and it's been a pretty good journey. So hope for it to continue. Hope for you guys to continue to support. And with that, let's dive into episode 50. Anaya Jones, University of Illinois student. She has her own platform as well called the Your Wrong Sir podcast. And her podcast platform has been ongoing for two years. And it's a forum built on the unique and in-depth analysis of the sports business, culture, and politics. She's a Chicago native committed to bringing a female voice of intrigue into a male-dominated sports industry. So, Anaya, how have you been? And how has your journey been when it comes to creating this podcast platform to be your own independent voice in the sports media spectrum? Yeah, first, thank you for the intro. I appreciate it. And you pronounced my name right. Everybody be struggling. So I really appreciate that one. Um, I'm honored to be on here, um, but I'm doing well. Happy Friday. This is a Friday, April 15th. We're recording this. So whoever's listening, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, and I hope your day is going well. Uh, but I'm really doing good. And, and for me, I think um, the journey it's been a journey, right? Um, but it has been nothing but rewarding. Like, I feel like this is starting the podcast, right? Was um, kind of like you said, heat of pandemic, same thing, same idea. And I was trying to go kind of through this period of my life where I'm like, okay, I'm in a business school here, right? Cool. I always talk about finance and accounting and I know I don't want to do that. And I know I want to be in the sports industry, but I'm trying to figure out how can I bridge that gap. How can I stand out? There are so many people who want to work for teams. There's so many people who want to work in sports. How do I show people like Anaya, that's who we need. Um, and I was listening to podcasts. I really got into them the summer of 2020, uh, just not even sports, but just like listening to them, eating them up, motivation, self-help, et cetera. And um, I was listening to all the smoke one day and I was like, you know what? I'm going to start my own podcast. Uh, and that was kind of the start of, and I remember the day it was May 18th. And then I released the podcast Juneteenth, a month later, a month and a day later. Um, but the journey has been amazing. It has taught me what I'm passionate about. I think it has taught me that I'm creative. Like before then, you could have never, ever told me that I was a creative person. Um, but the ideas that I come up with, and I'm like, oh, these are good questions, or this is good. Um, it's really showed me kind of what I want to do long term. I think it set me up and provided me with more clarity. And then ultimately, um, it's kind of helped me get to where I am. I wouldn't have this Nike internship this upcoming summer without my platform. Um, I've spoke with some amazing individuals like Taylor Rooks and NBA players and WNBA players. And um, I think it's just really allowed me to, you know, build credibility, get more comfortable speaking with people of all facets, you know, through Zoom, virtual, in person. And so it's really opened lots of doors for me to say the least. So it's been an amazing journey. Yeah, and I want to really touch into that. On your platform, you interviewed a professional journalist like Taylor Rooks. You've also interviewed Glenn Robinson III, Tim Sinclair as well. So bringing professionals to your platform to interview them and kind of um, go inside their brain and understand how they do what they do at a high level. How has that been on your platform? And what tidbits have you been able to take from them to kind of attribute to what you're doing on the side as an individual? 
Yeah, um, so it's been amazing. You know, I've got many no's, but when you get those yeses from those specific individuals, it's like, you be hype all day, you know, like when you get that email, like, yeah, I'll come on, let's do this time, let's do this day. You're like, yes, like I got it. And um, I think sometimes I'm one of those people where I'm like always on go that I don't realize kind of the impact or the importance of that person. Like I understand the importance of the person, but I don't get how big it is for my platform. Uh, and then I remember having Taylor on, you know, of course I was excited, but it wasn't my first time speaking to her. And so for me, it was just like, this is another opportunity for me to interview somebody, do well, um, and just bring somebody credible on my platform. But for other people, it was like, you had Taylor wrong, girl. Like you had, you know, whatever. And people who had never tuned in before wanted to tune in um, because, you know, people don't have the opportunity to get in contact with her. So for me, I think it definitely set me apart. And that was a good thing. Um, I can't even pin down the things that I've learned from each person. Like there's so, 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 so much. I would say the biggest thing is really just being genuine. Um, a lot of the times that I feel really gratifying at the end of podcast episodes is when people are like, this is one of my favorite interviews. Or like, you did a really good job, you know? And stuff like that is like, okay, I'm onto something, especially because I'm not a journalism major, you know? So I'm just trusting raw talent, trying to perfect, trying to study people um, in the midst of me doing all of these other things. And so um, I would say being genuine, allowing people to come to a space where they feel trust, but also feel comfortable. When you bring good energy, good energy is going to come back to you. You know, if you don't have personality and you're dry and things like that, it's not going to be a good conversation. Um, so I would say, there are so many like personal lessons that I've learned from each, even about their individual stories or how they got to places. But I think the biggest thing is like being genuine, being confident and having good energy. You have good energy. People always remember how you made them feel, you know? Um, and so hopefully, you know, eventually in the long run, if I want to work with so-and-so one day and I need a recommendation because I left a good impression, maybe one day they'd be able, you know, to give that to me. So I would say being genuine is really, is really huge. I think what makes your story even more amazing is that you're not a journalism student, but you have mm -hmm. this platform, you work on another podcast forum within the Illinois University as well. And so really my big question is, how are you able to balance two different podcast forums and yeah. still be a successful full-time undergraduate student? Because Man. when I was at Jackson State, we had our own little podcast did you go to Jackson as well. State? Ooh, I sure did, yeah. Okay. So when I was at Jackson State, me and some guys that were in the multimedia journalism industry, we had our own podcast form as well, but what you do on yours is a lot more in-depth than we did ours. You create posts about it. You have your own YouTube channel. You go all in. And so how are you able to balance that with being a student? Because you're successful in the podcast form, and I know you still got to be able to hit those books and be able to do that at a high level as well. Yeah, um, man, it's not easy. I'm going to start off with that. You know, like, it's really not easy. I have some days where I'm like, my God, like this better pay off, you know, like sometimes I'm like this better pay off. But I think the biggest things for me are time management. Um, even before starting a podcast is something I did really well, like my freshman year. I, if you know me, I always have a pen in my planner with me, um, writing down, scheduling things, making sure I know, you know, when homework is due. And, um, you know, I would even do at the beginning of every single semester, 
just to balance on my school side, I look at the syllabus for every class and I write down what homework assignments will do. So I don't have to go look back at the syllabus, but, but it's here and I'm planning out on Monday if something is due, if a project is due Friday, consult with your team Monday and we're going to Wednesday, you know, just planning it out. Um, another thing is waking up early. Waking up early has been absolutely life-changing for me. Um, I met some individuals when I was interning at a sports agency and they were just like, Anaya, like encouraging me to wake up early and we were all like pushing each other. Started getting up at not, uh, at 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. and working out and having my morning routine and really just chill with myself. Um, like it's so crazy how much you can get done from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. instead of waking up at nine and trying to do, I mean, it helped me for the podcast so much because I would wake up at five. I'm like, okay, I'm going to work out, do my morning routine, et cetera. When I get settled after I read and stuff, I know every Monday I want to send out at least five to 10 emails to potential podcast guests, whether they respond or not. Let me take that time to do that. If I know I have a podcast later this week, let me write my notes out. What do I want to ask? Or could this be my time to research the individual a little more, you know, to gauge things that I probably didn't know about them before. Um, so I think the biggest things are just um, really time management, using, you know, using your planner, planning things out, and most importantly, having faith. Like, it's not easy. And sometimes, you know, you may feel burned out. So take time for self-care, but have faith to understand that like where faith lies, worry doesn't coexist. And so if you have this vision in your head and you know that some days it can be hard, if you have faith and trust yourself that it's going for the right reasons and think about your why, think about why you started it or think about that time when somebody came up to you like, yo, I, I listened to your podcast and I was loving it. Those little things like keep me going. Um, and so I would say those like my three, four ingredients that really kind of help me, you know, balance all of this. Yeah, the big thing you said is time management. I think that's always important, especially in college, when you want to create other avenues that are a little different from the curriculum that you have to follow for your major. And to do that, balancing those two things is ever so important because it helps you really collect your thoughts and be concise and constructive in both avenues. So you really hit that on the nail as well. Um, so let's dive in to the heat of the topics. And the big one is you're a Chicago Bulls fan, you're a Chicago <laughs> Bulls native. So I know this season has been really exciting for you. And so I really want to start off by saying the obvious, which is the Bulls were really everybody's popular preseason pick to break through in the East and reach the playoffs for the first time since 2017. And they actually did. They yep. went 46 and 36 this past year behind the career season from DeMar DeRozan. And it was a career season. He averaged his highest points per game of his career at the age of 32, almost 28 a game. He shot a career high percentage from three, 35%, shot 50% from the field for just the second time of his career at 50.4, while averaging a career high in field goal attempts per game, 20.2, and field goal makes per game, 10.2. So as a Bulls fan yourself, what were your expectations for DeRozan when he signed with the squad and did he meet or exceed them for you personally this season? Yeah, so um, to be 100 with you, like I started off, um, like you said, Bulls fan, native, et cetera. Um, and I grew up in that Luol Dean, Kirk Heinrich, Derrick Rose, Joakim Noah, Jimmy G. Buckets, like we was hoping. And, you know, we were going through that time where Miami Heat was our rivals. And so I used to be watching every game. And then my guys started dwindling off. Nate Robinson left. Kirk is gone, Bulls is gone, Joe King's gone, Derek's hurt, Jimmy's gone. And so I got to a point, like as a Bulls fan, where I'm like, I'm not about to watch this team anymore. Like I was like dedicated 
to my people. And so I went through a phase of kind of like not watching, but I will say since that time, this has been the most excited I've ever been as a Chicago native for our team since then, um, since the era. So I think it's really great for the city. My expectations, DeRozan is an amazing player. Um, and I think, you know, he kind of, you know, there's times where people just forget what you've done for a league. People forgot what Derek did when he was injured for a while. And I think DeRozan went through that period where it was just like, you know what he's capable of, but if he's not the topic where the media is putting him out every day, it's like, you know, and so I'm really happy for him that he did well this season. You know, he's an amazing player. I was just curious how everything was going to work together. You had Kobe White, you had Io, you had a lot of bigger guard people. And I was just wondering how they would, you know, mesh together, but it turned out really well. And unfortunately, you know, COVID hit us a little bit through the season and knocked us off of our bounds a little bit, but we, I don't, I mean, we know they're not going to win it all. I think we can honestly say that, but for me, this was a successful season for management for them to kind of prove, okay, we can make a decent decision because, you know, before Zach Levine, they hadn't made good decisions in a really, really long time in terms of who to be on the team and free agency, et cetera. And so I think this ultimately was a successful season for them, for DeMar DeRozan. Uh, and, you know, he already had the max and, his contract's going to keep going up, and whether he stays with the Bulls or not, I think this is his chance for teams to remember who he was again. Yeah, this was really important for DeRozan, and it was really important for the Bulls. Like you stated, Chicago was in, in kind of a dead space for the past few years, and he came and revitalized that franchise, and kind of akin to, not exactly the same, but almost, when Chris Paul came to the Suns and kind of led them back into oh, yeah. playoff relevancy, that's what DeRozan did for the Bulls. He came in, he was the leader, the offense eventually ran through him, Zach Levine, who we're going to touch to a little later, took a step back and was like, look, DeRozan's top dog. He's the leader. We're going to follow him where he goes. And yeah. the biggest thing that really stood out in his game was the efficiency from two points and then his efficiency from three. 35% from three is phenomenal because we all know with DeRozan, he's acknowledged a lot in his career. He's not a three-point shooter. He's cool with not being one. He wants to be the master of the mid-range, and he still is. But yeah. him being able to protect that long-range shot goes a long way. And I kind of want to give a shout out to the San Antonio Spurs organization and Greg Popovich. They helped mold him into being a more complete player. And he really exercised those philosophies that he utilized in San Antonio, brought it to Chicago, and mm -hmm. everybody's reaping the benefits, rather, including himself. Yeah. Now, the next thing I want to touch base on is the injuries for the Bulls. I think this is why their fast start early in the year took a little slide. Um, the mm -hmm. big one is Lonzo Ball, who's announced out for the season at April 6th. Due to a meniscus tear, he started 35 games this season and had a career high three point shooting, 42%. That was identical from his career high field goal percentage. That was also 42%. He had a career high in steals per game and blocks per game, 1.8 and 0.9, respectively. There were 21 and 13 with him in the lineup. When he was out initially, which turned into he was out for good, um, how much did you feel like the Bulls missed him? And what oh. impact did he provide to the team when he was healthy? that he can continue to provide for them moving forward when he's 100% again next year. Yeah, so, you know, Lonzo isn't the flashiest person in the world, but it's his fundamentals. Um, and sometimes you just need a pure point guard out there, you know, rather than a scorer or a big person, but a pure point guard who can be a pure facilitator for the team. Um, and, I mean, that serves the glue. Like, a lot of them are the glue. Of course, they all contribute in different ways. But, I, I mean, when you have any player that's hurt that can positively contribute and that was also a part of your, like, big three, 
course that's going to hurt you. Um, so I definitely think it hurt them. And Caruso being out earlier, I think that hurt them a lot too. Um, he's just a scrappy individual with a lot of great energy and can come off the bench and really change the momentum of the game. Momentum is super important. You know, basketball is a game about runs um, and, and kind of winning the runs. And so I think those two injuries really hurt them. But ultimately, I mean, they still made it to the playoffs, you know. So even though they won't have Lonzo, and I don't think they make it all the way, I do think they – are going to be a little tough to beat and they're going to be scrappy and they're not going to let anybody run over them. Um, and so, yeah, we'll see. I hope injuries aren't an issue next year, but you know, you never know in basketball. You really never know for the Bulls and for a lot of teams this year, injuries has really kind of capped a lot of teams ceilings in terms of how far they can go down the line beyond the regular season. But like DeRozan, this was important for ball needed to change the scenery. Didn't really work out in LA never could really establish his role in New Orleans. He comes to Chicago, and he was really like the 3 and D guy in the backcourt. And mm -hmm. I still feel this way about Ball. I don't know if you do as well. I don't think he'll ever be that traditional point. He's more dynamic no, no, in never. transition. And in the half court, he's more effective as an Avery Bradley type, a 3 and D guy. But he was 3 and D to the max, and he did it really well. 42% from three, career high. That was really what the next step in Lonzo's game he needed to master, the long ball and being able to finish around the basket. And, and he was confidence. doing that very well. And confidence as well. And he did all of those three things well with the Bulls before he went out with injury. And at this point for Zoe, it's just about getting back to 100% and really mm -hmm. mastering on who he is as a pro. Because we saw in high school and college, he was the point guard aficionado. It's a little bit different in the NBA. Got to become more of a glue guy. But I think he can be a really good glue guy for Chicago moving forward if he's able to get back 100%. I agree. So when Ball was out, Ayo Dasumu, your alumni, yeah. alumni guy, on, he, was able, <laughs> he, was able to, he was able to come in and perform well with enhanced reps with Alonzo out. He was a um, rookie that finished with 8.8 .8 points per game, 2.8 rebounds, 3.3 assists. He on 52% shooting. He had 24 double-digit point outputs, outputs rather, following the loss of Zoe. From a torn meniscus, he had his fair share of double-digit assist games, like the 21 and 10 game he had versus Boston. Him coming in with Zoe out and performing really well, shed a light on what for the Bulls moving forward. And you would you guys went to the same institution, so I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure you had an opportunity to see him play in college. Yeah. Did you expect him to come in and provide that instant impact for Chicago, despite being a second-round pick? Um, I knew he was hungry. First of all, I don't think he should have been a second round pick, right? Um, but I think that just says a lot about like politics and the way things go and the importance of things. Like the man is in a Bob Cousy award. You know, he took the, Alana haven't been to the final four, would be Ohio State, would be EJ, like all of these individuals. And so I think he had an exceptional year. First, I'm proud of him for coming back to school because, you know, he declared for the draft initially and he was like, nope, coming back for another year. And I think that year really set him up for something different because I honestly don't know if he would have really, really got drafted, especially if he went so low this time. I don't know if the year before he would have. Um, but I, I'm not surprised because I think he's hungry. I think especially coming, having a successful year like that and being picked round two, so, okay, like, I'm gonna show y'all something. And then it's like, I'm in my hometown state, you know, you went to high school at Morgan Park, you went to school here in Illinois, and then you're with the, the team for, for the state, like, that's absolutely amazing. Um, and so, in terms of, you know, 
being surprised wasn't surprised. Extremely happy for him, though. And I do think that he proved himself a lot. Um, I think that kind of makes the, I don't know, let me know if you agree, but the the likelihood of Kobe White staying for too long a little slimmer because um, Ayo's there and doing what he needs to do. And I think he was the necessary needed addition, but that next check is going to be nice. So he definitely earned it his rookie season. I'm extremely proud of him. I think it might actually work out for Ayo and Kobe, both as Bulls long-term. I think Ayo's play allows Kobe to come off the bench, be that six-man scorer. I mm-hmm. think that's the identity that he was searching for throughout his young career with the Bulls, and he yeah, finally he found it. Yeah, he definitely wasn't that shooting guard coming off the bench type person, yeah. Yeah, so with Ayo, you know, like you said, politically-wise, the politics of it all, the thing about the NBA draft is if you stay in school more than a year, They're going to start questioning in terms of is your upside cap, like Mm -hmm. as the older you get, is there anything that you can bring to the table moving forward that you can expound upon? So that was the thing about Io. But like you said, he was a baller. I mean, that's just something you could recognize at Illinois University. And when he came into the league and was really performing well, it didn't shock me. And I think ultimately what it allows Chicago to do is build upon what he was able to bring to the table and utilize him moving forward, even when Zoe comes back as a leader of the second unit. And yeah. I have, I've had the opportunity to see the Bulls play live a couple of times. And he's a guy, every time he came in on the floor, made the right plays, was able to move out the basketball, was really confident and assured within his role and was a product of it. And mm-hmm. I think that's what the Bulls were kind of missing for a while. Obviously that leader that can establish himself offensively oh, yeah. and kind of rally the guys around, but those glue guys, they were always trying they to draft them. Mm-mm. And they always trying to draft and figure it out. But Io was a guy that they hit on. He came in, understood his role, and performed well out of it. And I yeah. think he's a product that can expound upon and be a valuable Bulls piece moving forward. And another sidebar on that is it just shows how how legendary this draft was and will be moving forward. Mm-hmm. Io was a second round gym. All right, we all know about Kay Cunningham, Evan Mobley, Jalen Green, Scotty Barnes. But you have guys like Io. You have guys like Zaire Williams, Chris, Chris Dorte. Alperen Sengun, this class is full of a whole bunch of guys that can play. And I think this will be a class moving forward where everybody got value if you picked in this draft. And Chicago is going to be one of those teams as well. Yes, I totally agree. And for a cheaper price too, with with second round, you know, majority of contacts are two-way. I don't know the details of his contract, but it's like that gave us space to have three max players and have this addition who can come off of the bench and still, you know, perform extremely well when they're hurt. It's amazing. So with that, Alex Caruso and Patrick Williams, you touched base on Caruso. He had the wrist injury when he went up for the dunk and Grayson Allen got him in the air. And he's, he was out for a while. He came back recently to end the year. So did Patrick Williams as well. He started off early in the year and he came back. So they're back now and they're going to provide a defensive identity and just some more glue guys that Chicago can utilize in the playoff run. How important is it to have these guys in the lineup, especially Patrick? Because coming into the year, we all thought Patrick would be back and be a huge focal point as a potential 3 and D guy that can evolve, like yeah. an OG Ananobi out in Toronto. He's back in his last game of the year against the Timberwolves. He dropped 35. That only enhances confidence moving forward against Milwaukee. How mm-hmm. important is it to have these two guys back into the fold for the Chicago postseason push? Yeah, I think one of the great things about the playoffs is people have to realize it's not the regular season, and it's also you've been playing 82 games. How much do you have left in your tank? 
you know? And when you have glue guys like that who can get out and scrap to the floor, you need things like that when you're down 3-1 and your team is down on themselves and you have those people who are going out there regardless and they're like, hey, we're going to get it. Hey, we're going to get these rebounds, et cetera. And so I think when you have scrappy individuals like that, they bring off the load of scores like Zach and scores like um, DeRozan, et cetera, and really just allow them facilitate in the way that they need to. Um, so I think those type of individuals make the game so much easier. And we've, you know, seen the Bulls kind of struggle ever since the era with Taj Gibson, Joakim, et cetera, in terms of having got big guys with a real presence and, you know, not just there. Um, and even we've seen that when Zach first came to the team, the team wasn't good. The pieces they had around him weren't amazing. And so now I feel like, having people around them will make it easy, especially when you're in a league that's competing with, you know, different teams, you know, the Grizzlies got uh, Jaron Jackson, just so many individuals with great, great big people. Um, I think that will help. Uh, I mean, a huge lot and really just change the momentum of the game. Like in terms of the fan base too, people don't talk about the presence of fans at playoffs. They had, they were the number one team with um, fans inside the stadium at home and also away and so things like that when people who can bring great energy rile the crowd up um, and, and kind of I would say you know sell like sell tickets you know people come for the dunking but they also come for the energy which is why Patrick Beverly has continuously been on teams and made the playoffs every single year that he's been in a league because you need somebody with that type of energy and that scrappy um, and I think those people us as fans and, and, and consumers really don't realize the impact that they have inside the locker room also. Caruso has experience with winning a championship, uh, which I think will ultimately help in the playoffs. DeRozan's been in the playoffs before, but this is really new for the Bulls. Um, and especially with them being a young team, you need people who have experienced this before, who can have the pose and composure um, to you know keep their head up when things aren't going well, especially when we don't project them to win at all. Um, and But we've seen them continue to stay together as a team glue together so I think you know it's just going to keep going as it already is but these are nothing but assets for them yeah those two guys are they're called grinders and we just saw mm -hmm. with the Minnesota Timberwolves they beat the LA Clippers because Beverly came in and he grinded and he mucked up the game and that's what playoff basketball is going to be about moving forward yeah. the grind mentality you're going to have to go through some possessions some quarters where it's a lot of low scoring it's a lot of banging it's a lot of rebounds it's a lot of missed shots a lot of deflections the little things they all matter and they all will amount to something so having mm -hmm. a guy like Caruso and Pat Williams guys that can come in and provide that will yep. be very exponential to the Bulls to have success in the postseason. And you're right. And we're going to get to the bulls Bucks series in a little bit. We yeah. kind of all acknowledge it's going to be a tough climb for him to get out of there. But, you know, these series are huge in terms of establishing a culture moving forward. Yeah. I remember when the Milwaukee Bucks played Chicago in 2015, and they were kind of in the same spot the Bulls are now. They're a young team. They're back in the playoff mix. And a lot of people didn't give them a chance to win, and they eventually lost in six. But that grind and that mentality, in my opinion, helped make Giannis into the player he is today, helped make Middleton into the player he is today, and helped establish that foundation moving forward for that Bucks, Bucks, Bucks rather organization. So I think that's what Chicago needs, and they're going to have that with Caruso and Pat Williams. So yeah. want to touch base on Kobe White and Zach Levine. They're like the old Bulls vanguard after the Jimmy Butler era. And these are two guys that were on the Bulls squad before they kind of got to this point right now. And yeah. so with Levine, he took less than 18 shots a game for the first time in his career. At 17.90, shot 47% from the field, 38% from the line. And he actually had a down year in scoring, rebounds, and assists. He still scored 24 points per game, so it's not that down, but it's down nonetheless. 
like I stated before, he deferred to DeRozan a lot this year. So how much do you feel like it impacted his game, but has it been a plus for the squad? I think it's been a plus for the squad. Um, you know, 24 points a game is still a lot. And that's still enough. If you have three people averaging at least 20 and people being scrappy and Caruso out there, momentum, you're guaranteed majority of the time to win the game. Um, so, of course, it affected. Everybody has to make adjustments. We see um, even with the Lakers, Brian, I mean, Russell Westbrook having to make adjustments. Carmelo Anthony, we see people going through different periods based on who their counterparts on on the court, and they have to change their game. We've seen Derrick Rose change his game and do a 100% 360, right? Um, so I think that's honestly inevitable, uh, but it doesn't seem like he's dissatisfied for it. So why should we be? You know, they look like they have really great chemistry. They support each other. They love each other. Um, so I think that's kind of like a conversation we really don't need to have. If he continues to do what he needs to do well, um, and they all mesh together, we can't do anything but be happy for them. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment as well. I think the bigger thing about Levine this year has been, and he's acknowledged this really before the All-Star break, the injuries. Like, he's been hurt, and that's severely affected his game recently. And he's talked about how he's had to play through the pain. And his pain tolerance and threshold has been extremely high. But I think that's been more of a huge hit on his game rather than DeRozan coming in and kind of taking shots away from him, which has happened. You can tell by the numbers. But the biggest thing you stated is he's fine with it. He's established it. DeRozan's the guy. And I think he realized at this point of his career, he wants to get into the playoffs. He wants to get playoff victories. He wants to chase the championship. And yeah. we saw that with Booker last season with the Suns. When Paul came, it was really all about, look, I'm trying to win. I've been in a tanking culture mentality territory for years. I got a guy coming in that's all about winning. He's a Hall of Famer. I can get there. DeRozan, that same type of guy. And that's really where Levine's focus is moving forward. And it's helped a lot for the squad. And it's also helped for Kobe White. He's come off the bench. And his point per game average is extremely low this year, but he's got career highs in field goal percentage at 43%, three-point percentage at 38%, two-point percentage at 49.1. He is thriving in the six-man role and has really helped his progression in his mm -hmm. young career. How important was it for the Bulls to find out what Kobe White was good at role-wise, have him come off the bench and be their six-man scorer, and now he's thriving at a level that two years ago he wasn't putting up at all? Yeah, um, I think it was really good for them because um, I think for the management, especially people were really hard on him. Like when he came as a rookie and everything wasn't going the way that we needed to, you know, as fans, you can be like, no, you need to get rid of him and trade, you know, but sometimes it's all about fit. And so I'm really, really happy for him. I mean, when we came and he was drafted, people knew that he was coming and he was a, he could shoot. That was what everybody highlighted about him. So give him the opportunity to do that. And like I said, once again, having the right people around you can free up space for you to do what is best for you. And I think they've kind of built an offense around him. Um, his teammates know his strengths. And when you put your teammates where their strengths are, you know, you can you can do nothing but get better. And so, yeah, when you're coming off the bench and averaging, what did you say, 49% at that two, you know, it's going to be fine. We got to up that three, it's at 38, but it'll get better. <laughs> Yeah, this was huge for Kobe, man. I, I just felt like he felt like a fish out of water early on in his career. Um, they starred him a little bit and at the one spot, and he's not a traditional a lead guard guy. He's a combo guy that's thinking about scoring first, playmaking later. So having him come off the bench and be that energizer bunny for them offensively helps exponentially, and I think it maximizes his career moving forward because maybe, I mean, this is a lofty expectations, maybe he becomes that Lou Williams-type guy for the rest yeah. of his career. And that's not a bad career. Always making money being that 
guy that can get 12 points off the bench. And so this was huge for him. And this was huge for the team, kind of bringing it all back in a full circle. This is why they're 46 and 36. Everybody was able to define their role, find, find out where they can fit in properly and excel within it. And if it wasn't before the injuries, they'd probably be a 51 team. But they're in the playoffs. They're getting healthy at the right time. And they're ready to make that push against the Milwaukee Bucks. And let's talk about it. Bulls, Bucks, first time these two teams have met since 2015 in the postseason. Bulls don't really have a great chance. You're going against the defending champs. And Giannis Antetokounmpo, the best player in the league, arguably. As a Bulls fan, (laughs) how can they keep this series close? Because I got them winning one game. How can they make this a six or seven game series to have a chance to pull off the upset? Uh, Wow. That's a really good question. Because um, I haven't watched the Bulls in depth lately. I'm going to be real. Um, I think I think the biggest thing is just really making smart decisions, making smart decisions. I think that's really the biggest thing. Like I said, I can't speak too much on it because I haven't like watched them in depth to analyze them enough. Um, but I would say just kind of keeping the game they have, of course, staying healthy, but that's something you can't control. Um, and I think really being scrappy, being scrappy. Um, and a post player has got to be strong. Got to be strong and you got to rebound. Giannis has a lot of opportunities to get in the paint. We know that's what he loves more than anything. Um, And uh, they get a lot of second chance rebounds too. And so I think just us being strong, trusting, um, shooting well, and just really staying together will be really important. I don't see them winning it all though, but you never know what happens. So I'm not going to bet against my home team. So, (laughs) Yeah, for them personally, like you said, establishing some type of equality on the glass, and then being able to defend the three because Milwaukee's that unique team where they can muck it up and then they can go up tempo and they do both very well. Credits to Mike Budenholzer to establishing that culture in Milwaukee to do both things very well. So yeah, you got to keep them off the glass. This is a team where you give Milwaukee second or third chances. Eventually Giannis is going to slam the ball through the hole and they're going to kick it out to their shooters for three offensively for Chicago ball movement is paramount. We're going to know at times late in the shot clock and late in games and, Later on in possessions, you're going to go through Levine and DeRozan to get your buckets in ISO situations. But if you don't have to, getting everybody else in rhythm and involved offensively provides confidence, fluidity, and keeps the defense on its heels. So I think if Chicago does both of those things, they can get two games. But the worst thing that happened for them was Milwaukee got the third seed. I think teams that I don't think favored them well was getting Milwaukee and getting Philly. I think if they got anybody else, that would be a better matchup for them because yeah. of what they provide offensively, and they would have a better shot. They drew a tough draw with the Bucks. I don't see them getting far. We both agree on that. But it'll be interesting to see them put up a fight and ultimately establish a culture that they can drive home upon moving forward down the line. Yes, that's facts. So next up on the topics at hand, the inclusion of athletes and sports media. So we've seen Draymond Green front and center make mm-hmm. a push while playing to be in sports media as an analyst. We've got RG3 in college football as a broadcast analyst for games. And sports athletes have their own podcasts like All the Smoke, as you mentioned early on. And even on NBA Today, Shanae Agumakoy guest stars with Richard Jefferson, who played in the NBA, and Kendrick Perkins. So my question to you, former athletes being further involved in sports media as analysts or insiders and whatnot during and after their careers, is it a good thing for sports journalism or Mm -hmm. not? Why or why not? 
I think there are pros and cons to this. I think this is very much so 50-50. And I say that because you have different platforms like um, Brandon Marshall's platform, where I am athlete, and all the smoke, et cetera. They inspire individuals like me to show me like, hey, I don't have a journalism degree, but I can dang sure make a good platform. And I can have good conversations and I can build the trust of various people. And I think the great thing about it is, you know, a lot of the things that we're seeing athletes um, confess on these podcasts and talk about, they were never on ESPN. They were never with Stephen A or Skip Bayless or other people, excuse me, just because there's a lack of like trust there, right? Um, which is like why LeBron started uninterrupted because people would change his words and change what he said. Um, and so I think those things are really good. And also, we talk about controlling the narrative with athletes at the point where they can speak and have honest conversations, I think it helps. I think it's really different because, you know, we see the issue of Russell Westbrook and his wife with Stephen A. Smith. And sometimes there's a lack of respect um, for as a person for people. I think sometimes when people get on TV and they say what they want, and I think that's the same thing. It's the same thing like when you have an athlete who's owning a team. They understand it from an entire differently perspective because they've been on both sides of the field. So they may address things a little differently or provide a little more grace or be a little more respectful for athletes. Um, I think the con though is trying to, it's, it, for me, it reminds me the same thing of um, boxing with Jake Paul, et cetera. And so you have people who are amateurs who didn't go to school for journalism, who didn't do anything but perform well in a sport. And now they just have these platforms that are blowing up. And then you have people who are in master's programs for journalism and making reels and doing beat stories. And it's like, I'm doing all of this and you know, y'all just blowing up and y'all could do journalism. Um, and so sometimes I think some people may feel like it takes away the credibility of individuals who've worked really hard to get there and have real experience. So I think it's 50-50. It's a, it's a pro and a, and a con sometimes. Um, but honestly, in all reality, I do love it. I do think with a lot of some athletes, I won't name a few, but just the podcast that I watch, they need a lot of uh, better skill in terms of asking questions. Sometimes it's too much conversation and not real direction in terms of entertaining the listener, in my opinion. And so I think they do have to take the craft a little more serious, even if that wasn't your first nature. Um, but I do think there are a lot of benefits for it for people. Yeah, I'm in the same ballpark as you. It's 50-50. So the good thing is personable. And personality. So being personable about certain topics, such as the intricacies of being on a football team or what a football player thinks when an organization makes a move or doesn't make a move, or just really them looking at it from a hindsight 50-50 perspective in terms of they're not playing anymore. And they can kind of bring the fan bases into their rear view mirror in terms of understanding what they went through, what they did or didn't. So that's good. And I think the other aspects that you stated are facts like they're not experienced. So a lot of these guys are getting hookups because it connects that they know um, yeah. or just based upon their personality as well. Like, oh, he's a very unique guy in terms of his personality will exude views and ratings. So we're going to put him on the pod. And I have these three things as well on top that I want to kind of get into with you. Okay. Um, gatekeeping, lack of knowledge of the game, despite playing the game and being unable to articulate and properly disseminate a message to the audience. So I'm going to start with gatekeeping. Uh, Draymond Green has his own podcast with the volume called the Draymond Green podcast. Colin Cowherd was able to hook him up and it's been obvious on inside the NBA and whatnot. Draymond wants to be in sports media. That's yeah. that's fantastic for him. That's good. And yes, he he's a very interesting person to listen to. But I think at times him and others, whether it's the NBA or the NFL, 
they have a tendency to gatekeep in terms of who they value as being their guys or who they don't. And Draymond's a defensive guy, and he's an individual that prides himself on winning DPOIs and being mm-hmm. versatile as a defender, understanding guys' offensive intricacies and knowing what to see and not what to see on the basketball floor. Um, his angst and bitterness towards Rudy Gobert confuses me at times. And then he went back and forth a little bit at Carl Anthony Towns on the Westbrook situation where I thought Towns wasn't wrong. And so I do have an issue at times where there are athletes who are in media that utilize their platform to gatekeep who to promote and who not to promote. And I don't think that's any better than what fanatics do at times or other media members do as well with their platforms in terms of downgrading others and uplifting others. What do you feel about that? Um, I think it's kind of inevitable. Honestly, we're human. We're always going to have people who criticize other people. We all have some bias in some way, whether we say we don't or not, we do. Uh, majority of these platforms, you know, the New York Times, et cetera, you can tell if they're more democratic, if they're more, you know, conservative, et cetera. Everybody has a bias. I have a bias. I have a preference of what I want to talk about on my podcast. Um, and I think with situations like that, it's kind of unfortunate, especially because you know where this comes from and you didn't like when so-and-so did it to you when you were on the other side of this. So to not do it to other people, but I mean, I think that's kind of an issue we're dealing with a lot of the times too. We pick and choose who we want to highlight. Um, a lot of people, you know, not in a bad way, but they were talking about the Bulls when the Phoenix Suns were undefeated and little things like that. So the media controls the narrative sometimes. Um, and I think really you just have to let the work prove for itself uh, with these other athletes, too. And like LeBron did, control your own platform, put out what you want. But I, I genuinely think the gatekeeping is inevitable and it doesn't just happen with athletes, but it happens with, you know, ESPN commentators and journalists, too. That's facts. And I think. The only thing I'll have to say to that is it's unfortunate that athletes, the the same athletes that are irritated when journalists gatekeep do the same thing. I think Mm -hmm. that's but like you stated, hypocrisy is inevitable in the human nature in society. Mm -hmm. I I mean, there's plenty of times we're like, don't do this, but then we sneakily do it or subconsciously do it. You know what I'm saying? So it's 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 unfortunate. But like you stated, it's inevitable. But these are two things after that that can be controlled, being unable to articulate and properly disseminate a message to the audience, Charles Barkley at times, LaDainian Tomlinson, how can these individuals work on that moving forward? Because I'm going to have an example. So Shannon Sharp, before he got to Undisputed, had his own radio show when I was like in middle school and his Southern draw and his inability at times to articulate what he was saying clearly was evident, but he worked on that for a while to where now he's able to articulate what he's trying to disseminate to the masses effortlessly, easily, still maintaining that Southern humor that he always has. Um, There's been plenty of individuals that have been in the game for a while that still just haven't improved. Um, What do you think they can potentially work on? Or is it something that by them choosing not to, is them being able to maintain their authenticity in a weird way? Uh, Um... I definitely think choosing not to, for some of them, they're thinking that this is them being authentic. Um, But I think it's a different thing to be authentic in growth. Growth doesn't stunt your originality or authenticity. And I think that's what people have to understand. And it's also being open-minded, right? A lot of the times when we have people who aren't as open-minded, we see that they're older. They come from a different generation. They may be more stuck into what their ideas are and they feel like this is the way that they say it and they're not gonna change it. I think it has to do a lot with age. 
maybe authenticity, but just really the lack of open-mindedness. Um, I think that's what it all contributes to. Those are all facts as well. Um, yeah, age is huge. Age is huge. I think once you get to like 45, 50, you're at a vantage point of your career of life where you're really content about how far you've came. And these guys are individuals that played in the league. So maybe exactly. in their hearts, when they articulate something, it's like, mm -hmm. it makes sense to me because I've been here. I know what I'm saying. Yeah. I know what my thoughts are saying. I'm articulating them. So that's that. So like you say, growth is important. I just feel like if you're going to continuously be in front of the camera, talking to viewers, mm -hmm. and that's how you pay the bills, I think eventually you do have to grow and evolve as an articulate analyst, whether you play in the league or not, because yeah. eventually over time, it does get old and nothing against Charles, but when he's not as funny, uh, it does get a little bit bland because it's like, I don't really know what you're trying to say. And there's no humor with it. So I'm kind of like, I'm lost here. Where's the <laughs> message? And on LaDainian Thomas, who I brought up as well, it's just an unfortunate struggle because I know what he's trying to say. He's really trying hard to articulate the message, but mm -hmm. he's just not verbal enough or doesn't have the ability to socially construct what he's trying to say or disseminate right. from his mouth so those are unfortunate things that can be worked on but like you say growth is something that a lot of people also, don't want to yeah and i think <laughs> it also contributes to a thing of you know sometimes just hiring people who have been athletes and don't really have the real skill like we said so these are sometimes the cons of people who don't know how to effectively articulate those are the real cons and i, I guess my thing would be to these organizations is if you want to hire somebody based upon the personality that's fine but have them have a individual that's been accredited within the journalistic game for a while show them the ropes for about a two to three year span to where eventually they look like a more groomed complete product than they were coming mm -hmm. in now one more thing that i feel like is inexcusable though the lack of understanding the game when you play the game so there's this narrative that players love to articulate on social media when fans have a back and forth banter with them they always yeah. like to be like yo i play basketball you don't know this. I think the greatest thing I've seen, which I thought was hilarious, was Jamal Crawford dropped his top five all time. And he was like, if Kobe Bryant's not in your top five, you don't know basketball. And so another thing that I can align with that was my issue with Shaquille O'Neal. And after saying this, I'm going to pontificate the question to you. He has a tendency a lot of the time on inside the NBA to just when it's time to break down the game, he always keeps it mundane. It's kind of like the star is going to play better. And the others. And I'm like, Shaq, I mean, those are obvious things, but we would like for you to go in depth on the X's and O's, why this guy's struggling, why that guy's struggling, and what they can work on, how they can kind of maneuver themselves closer to the basket and whatnot. Um, those details not being articulated by athletes who love to tell fans that they know more about the game than you, how are they able to jump over that hurdle? Or maybe they just can't. And maybe it's one of those things where they play the game at a high level or an adequate level, and that's it. They're not really able to break it down to a science and relay it to a fan base. They may not understand the nuance of the game, but can understand it a little better if you condense it and make it more comprehensive for them. Yeah, oh, I, that's a really great question, by the way. I think it just, like, depends on the person. Um, and sometimes, you know, even, like, let's say we're good at math. I'm good at math, you're good at math, but we may not know how to explain it to one another. And so I think there's a different thing to teach and do. And that's the reason why a lot of them aren't coaches. 
And so I think with just things like that, you just kind of realize like some people just have the ability to perform well, but they may not be in the ability to teach, you know? Um, and maybe he just, I'm not sure what goes to these guys' minds. So maybe it's, hey, I'm gonna keep it at this or I'll earn my stripes and, you know, I don't feel the need to explain or whatever the situation may be. But I do think there's a difference between doing and teaching. And we see that in a lot of situations for people. That's real. Um, at best thing you said about it all was this, this is why some individuals aren't coaches. And mm-hmm. in a weird way, being an analysis at a, as a journalist is kind of like coaching because you're breaking down to everybody what went on, why it happened, how it happened, and moving forward, what should be different so things can be different in a positive way. And these are the things that these individuals struggle with. And this is why, and I don't know if you feel the same way, just because you play basketball or football doesn't mean you have a better knowledge or insight of it than somebody that hasn't, which is why some of the best coaches are guys that never played the game, but they studied it. They analyze and have a love for it for years to where they can become elite coaches in the NBA or college or high school level. And I think that's what makes the human experience unique in its own right. Like you can do something at a high level, but there's somebody else that may not be able to do it at a high level, but they can understand the nuance of it. And that's what makes them special as well. So kind of things to really learn on. Exactly. Uh, Last but not least, the Deshaun Watson situation. It's been highly publicized. It's been a situation that has been crazy the past two years. And as of today, it looks like the conclusion isn't really coming anytime soon. So I pulled up an article that came out today, three or four hours ago, that the attorneys of the 22 women who accused Deshaun Watson of sexual assault and misconduct want records from the Houston Texans that feature information or any non-disclosure agreements and correspondence between Watson and his former Texan coaches, a subpoena that was filed Wednesday in Harris County District Court in Texas, Texas rather, asked for correspondence between Watson and the Texan security staff, coaches, and his head trainers, among other informations. These attorneys are seeking very specific records from the Texans, such as any correspondence between Watson and any of the team's coaches regarding the accusations, Watson's contract, which specifically states the portion of the contract that details what access he had to the training staff, any records of payment the team made on Watson's behalf from 2019 to 2020 for physical therapy or massages, any records of payment to the Houstonian on behalf of Watson, and the list goes on and on. The subpoena also asks for communications between the team and the two hotels, the Houstonian and the home to suites, where some of the women met Watson for massages where ultimately these accusations manifested. Um, so that's latest. Mm-hmm. What has been current and ongoing for the past few weeks is Watson got a new deal, got a new contract, $230 million guaranteed with the Cleveland Browns. And as of this week, it came out, it's been said that the trial dates for civil court, since no criminal charges will be fought against Watson, won't happen this season. So it looks like Watson will play for now And now the NFL hands are tied because I always believe that the NFL was going to lay down some level of suspension to Watson once civil court concluded, but civil court won't even start till next year. Now we got these subpoenas that came out where basically the lawyers of the accusers are basically charging the Houston Texans as being accomplices with Watson's alleged activities. And so now this has become a whole nother thing to where what can the NFL do to Watson? Because He's not going to get charged criminally. The civil court cases aren't happening anytime soon. There's going to be public outcry throughout the year if he plays. And right now, the NFL continues to say, 
We're waiting on everything to clear up so we can make this decision, but it's not going to clear up anytime soon. How can the NFL come on top of this a lot better than what they will if they go on their current route? Because on their current route, he's just going to play and nothing's going to happen until everything works well, itself so out do legally. Think, do you think he shouldn't play? Um, I feel as if, <sighs> historically speaking for the NFL, Ben Roethlisberger and Ezekiel Elliott weren't charged. Obviously, Roethlisberger settled out of court and Zeke was found, I guess, not guilty. I think his girlfriend came out and said nothing happened. Um, but they got suspended four and six games. I think he has to get suspended for something. Well, not, I don't want to say for something, but he has to get suspended based upon all everything that's happened, based upon their track record of how they've conducted suspensions in the past. And if even if you don't want to suspend him, I think you have to put him on paid leave until everything works itself out. Because the way the NFL is progressing itself as a brand now, they're including women as refs. They're including women in coaching hirings. They won't want to be a part of the NFL experience as workers, employees, and whatnot. If that's your brand that you're moving towards, you got to send a message to a guy that arguably may have been held, a, arguably may have been a part of sexual misconduct with 22 women. And so I think because of that, you have to lay down some type of, some type of, not a solution, but some type of trip. How do I put it? Some type of punishment for him. And I know a lot of people are going to say he's innocent because he wasn't charged criminally, but NFL historically has shown that doesn't matter. They feel like any bad publicity that you put on them, you're going to get held accountable for it. And he's gave them bad publicity. So because of that, he should be held accountable for it with some type of suspension. And right now, the way they're going about it, I don't think they're going to do it because they're waiting on civil court and that's not going to happen until after the season. What do you think about it all? Uh, well, I have a lot to say about what you said. I think, first of all, people aren't guilty until proven. Um, and so I think sexual assault is an extremely sticky topic because um, individuals could be lying or he could have done it. However, I think the timing of the way that the information came out was extremely funny in terms of what was happening with the Houston, Texas. And I think that if um, you blame Deshaun and the Texans also needs to get consequences too. Uh, I get where you're coming from in terms of publicity, but I don't think the NFL has the right to be a hip hypocritical league when they literally were built at the hands of only having an organization for white individuals at Yale and Princeton. Um, we know that this league wasn't built for African-American people. And most importantly, they've continuously shown us that they have racist owners, um, that they have racist people who work for the organization. And so I think they have bigger fish to fry, not uh, dis, um, not, not concerning Deshaun Watson, but I think that the brand that they're building, I don't think that they have a positive brand that they built at all. Um, and that's just my personal opinion. Um, yeah, I think the NFL is an extremely racist organization. And I mean, the history just proves to be that. And so a brand, I don't agree. Um, especially when, you know, black quarterbacks still aren't getting the notoriety they deserve um, or things of that sort. I do understand your um 
point about paid leave though that makes a lot of sense um just with under as much scrutiny as he is under uh to play a season is kind of like whoa so I mean I don't really have any direction on what I think they should do because he could be innocent and all of that could be for no reason or he could not be um but I do think as an organization it is formal to kind of conduct paid leave or kind of have a uh, individual outside of the organization until things are cleared up um but we'll see how they they work these things out and do it but I also think that the NFL kind of has no place to judge anybody about publicity that they've given when I think a lot of the issues they brought upon themselves. Those are all true. Nonetheless, we just had a conversation about uh, hypocrisy and human nature. And Mm -hmm. if we want to talk about one of the more hypocritical leagues and professional sports, the NFL is at the top of the list. And you can make a case for NBA, NHL, MLB to be second. And a great example was them blackballing Colin Kaepernick. And then right after they blackballed him, they're like, yo, in racism. And I'm like, whoa, like that took about two years. And (laughs) that sounds great and all, but I felt a type of way when the players came out and was like, yeah, we're speaking out against racism. That's wrong. And it's like, why weren't you guys taking a stand for Colin? When he made his stance in 2016, it was basically like everybody for themselves in that situation. Integrity or the dollar. A lot of right. people care more about money. Um, a lot of these athletes, I think what people don't realize is, especially like rookies, et cetera, they feel that this is all they have or this was their way of making it out. This is how they feed their family. Um, and I agree with you. I think that they all should have stood up with Colin Kaepernick. And my rebuttal to all of that is that our players and African-American people do not know the value that we have in our self-worth. If all African-American players stop playing football in the NFL and boycott it, What's the league? And so I think we have to start understanding our value. Um, But at the same time, if you say, hey, what's the league? If we leave, we got new recruits coming in every single year and guys and other African-American people who are so eager to get here because this is what they dreamed about since they were little kids. Um, So I think it's so so much to unpack. Um, But I totally agree with you that more should have stood up. But I think it was about, hey, do I have integrity or do I care about this money? And a lot of people chose to check. And that's facts. And I can make the same case about the bubble. In the bubble, all the police brutality and basically white supremacy at its all-time high was conducted outside of those walls during the heat of the pandemic. And you had a lot of the young players really not want to be in there and want to take a stand. I could I make a strong case that the main reason why the Milwaukee Bucks flamed out was what happened in Kenosha. They oh, weren't yeah. there in it. And one of their emotional leaders, George Hill, articulated that. Why the F are we here? And that showed in their play. And so Everybody was ready to take a stand, but guys like LeBron were kind of like, nah, like I'm not ready to do that. I want to maximize my top dollar in a situation where I can win a championship. And mm-hmm. we saw how that turned itself out as well. And so I think what this, what capitalistic society has showed a lot of the times is that money supersedes integrity. Yeah. And due to that, everybody's going to prioritize, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to prioritize making the bang, the biggest bang for their buck over what is right. And on the Kaepernick situation, I personally feel all it would have took was players just be like, you know what? Um, if y'all blackball him, we're going to sit out. And I think that would have ended all this. Oh, oh, he can't get a job. I think owners would have came together and was like, look, man, we're going to find a way to get him a gig, whether that's um, as a backup on a practice squad, something, because we can't lose dollars. And yes, there's been historically an NFL history, rather scabs coming into play when players wanted to sit out for more money. And they had a season with scabs, but inevitably 
Are they going to continue to have a season with scabs? Not long-term because their product at its all-time high is built upon top athletes performing at a high level. But to bring it all the way back to Deshaun, uh, I just feel like at the bottom line, I agree. I understand the sentiments of innocent to proven guilty. I think that's what the law states. But a lot of times public image really dictates if you're truly innocent or guilty. And so my situation on Deshaun is that um, once he wasn't sent to jail, that ultimately let the league know, hey, he's available. And he got paid $230 million, And I know a lot of people, because he got paid top dollar, lost their mind. I feel like that's where a lot of the energy and animosity is coming from. He's the highest paid quarterback. There were there was literally an individual in the athletic. I, I forgot his name. I, it might have been the Ravens owner or GM. He was like, man, like we knew this day was coming, but he got the full guarantee. And I feel like his energy was more so not about Deshaun getting it, but he knows down the pipeline is Lamar Jackson. He's going to have to get paid as well. Um, so inevitably, I think pay the lead is the move. And ultimately, civil court is going to figure itself out. I think in the bottom of my heart, he's going to settle out with some. And I'll just say this, personal opinion, personally, um, I think he probably did it. And the reason why I feel like he most likely did it, and even if it's one of those situations where um, he didn't do anything criminal, but he was being very uh, unprofessional, um, very creepy, very pushing it over the line. It's one of those situations where volume speaks. And I think at a time where there is a chance people can lie on you. I'm not going to say that they can or they can't. But when we start getting up in the double digits and when you start reading articles where people have similar stories and it escalates over time where he's starting to become a guy that realizes his power to push it to the point where he can get away with things and realize that he's going to have public backing and support from the organization. You're at a spot where it's just power trumps all. And so uh, I, I just hope that everybody involved gets their justice, whether it's um, they feel justified in terms of speaking their truth and they're finally heard or an individual that's involved in a case like this is exonerated. And so that's something that the NFL will never be able to give. But I understand that this organization that you articulate, this league is built upon being hypocritical, being very racist to the utmost degree. I mean, this is why I think there was a point in time where during the offseason, we had one black head coach and that was a problem. So that just speaks volumes to itself. And so I think hopefully it works out for everybody. But I do think the NFL continues to care about its public image in its main core audience. And let's be real, the main core audience is conservative white people. So it's not going to look good if this black guy that's charged with potentially assaulting women is playing with a full contract deal while his case is pending. So they're going to have to shelve him to the side figure that situation out when it does and hopefully it does for everybody involved yeah no that definitely makes total sense it does and does indeed um so this is the end of episode 50 of the independent podcast it was great to have anaya jones on on the platform to talk about a variety of things in depthly um but before i go i'm gonna throw one more topic in it's about the playoffs the nba playoffs okay. um we talked about the bulls and the bucks so I'm going to list a team that you have as a favorite, a team that you may have as a dark horse, and a team that you feel like may be a little bit overrated. We're going to start in the East. Your favorite in the East is who and why? 
Ah, uh, you killing me. I haven't been watching the NBA a lot for real. So I feel like I'm not the best credible person to be saying that right now. So I'm like, yeah, I ain't gonna, I ain't even gonna put nothing out there that I ain't really, you know, uh, heavy headstrong on. Ah, uh, I feel you, I feel you, I feel you. But <laughs> I feel you on that as well. Um, so I'll just pick it up and carry it over for me. So for the East for me, and if you feel like I'm speaking for Liddy, you can jump in. Mm-hmm. I do feel like the favorite out East is the Bucks. I mean, they're the champs. They've been playing pretty well as of late i feel like the last two weeks of the season they really locked in and hunkered down and started playing playoff basketball and they were beating teams like philly brooklyn on the road and with Giannis really taking his game to another level drew holiday and chris middleton getting even more comfortable in their secondary roles and their bench diverse pieces really being able to come off and give them high quality minutes i think they're the favorites in that right there mm-hmm. um i do think the dark horse out east is probably Toronto. Now, I don't have Toronto beating Philly, but I wouldn't be shocked if they did. Nick mm-hmm. Nurse is a championship-winning coach. He's going to always bring defensive uh, sequences, adjustments, and personalities on the floor. And yep. this is a team where all it takes for them to win a game on a road, you got to go back in Toronto, Canada, to play where Philly won't be with Matisse Thibault because of the COVID-19 restrictions in Toronto. He's not vaccinated. And you get in a slippery slope, we got to play there. But after your best defender, it's going to be tough. So I say Toronto's dark horse. And then overrated would be Miami Heat. Um, they've been, <laughs> I agree. I agree overrated. All right. I agree with that. Now, I was looking good with the overrated point because they lost five straight. Then they won five straight. And mm-hmm. I will acknowledge this for the Heat. Their bench is a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, they got guys that can come off the bench and give them quality point shooting. Max Struess, Tyler Hero is going to win six men of the year. Um, the one of the Martin brothers has come along and he gives them energy and effort and tenacity. But my biggest issue with the Heat are throughout the year, it's felt like their best player has been Tyler Hero, and that's <laughs> not good long term. I, I know Bam Adebayo has 20 and 10, but when I look at his skill set in his game this year, he's not solid with the jump shooting, doesn't really have a post game consistently that he can put down to a productive memory. He really relies on a lot of lob action, and he's an undersized five. Miami's an undersized team. Yeah. So while they'll be able to beat Cleveland or Atlanta, whoever comes out there in the first round, they're going to have to play Philly or Toronto. They're just as tough. They're just mm-hmm. as grimy and they're just as versatile. And when the shots are falling, how long can you hang on to your hat of playing hard nosed defense for 48 minutes in the playoffs? Eventually it's going to become a three point shooting contest who makes the most threes. And that's what I have a, issue with Miami because they have snipers but if you run them off the line can they create their own shot that's a big question with the heat there out east um for the west I guess favorite ironically enough the Suns yeah um yeah they've been rolling through everybody um Chris Paul when he was on the floor that team was at a peak level then when he left Devin Booker in my opinion took that next step to be the best shooting guard in basketball he was scoring at an efficient rate. He was playmaking. He was getting down his defensive stance, making stops. And a guy that I think took a 360 revolution and really took it to a next level was DeAndre Ayton. During mm-hmm. the season, he wanted the max. They didn't give it to him. He's playing so well to where now it might be tough for the Suns to keep him long term, but he's playing at a productive rate. If he takes it to the next level in the playoffs, I think every economical compensation that he desires, he will get this mm-hmm. offseason. So they're my favorites. Dark horses, in my opinion, are the Grizzlies. I Grizzlies. think they're being slept <laughs> on. I think they're being slept on. And the crazy thing about Memphis was early in the season, 
uh, it was the preseason. I saw them play Charlotte in Milwaukee. And I know when you hear the preseason, you're like, bro, like nobody's playing that intensely, but they were. And against Charlotte and Milwaukee, they were going at it, like 48 minutes of hard effort, teamwork, tenacity. And mm-hmm. I was like, yo, they're going to be one of the underrated starting fives, underrated teams in the league. And mm-hmm. they lived up to my prediction. They're second in the West. And I still feel like they're slept on because there's a lot of love for Golden State. There's a lot of appreciation for Luka and Dallas, even though Luka's hurt. And yeah. I think everybody expects those teams to usurp them. And I keep hearing you're young, you're too young, you're not ready to take that next step. Mm-hmm. And my opinion on youth in the playoffs, especially in the NBA, when you're playing seven-game series, a lot different than sudden death elimination in the NFL and college basketball, is that youth stuff doesn't matter if you're playing with continuity and chemistry and everybody knows their roles and your team is rolling. And they're rolling. And I expect them to at least get to the conference finals. And if they get there and play Phoenix, I give them a puncher's chance to do some damage out West. And last but not least, I think the overrated team and a lot of people are going to be shot. I think it's Golden State. I, <laughs> I know a lot of people feel Utah because Utah has this bad rap due to their last two years. Yeah. Even though I think Utah is probably going to get to the second round and that's their ceiling. I think it's Golden State because everybody's living in the past. Mm-hmm. And I, the past, in my opinion, is Steph, Clay, Dre in 2015, 2016, what they were in, hey, Kevin Durant in 2017, that dynastic run. Yeah. I think everybody's living in that past where we remember what they were at their peak. And then they all kind of came back this year and we automatically thought, yeah, Clay's back after a two-year hiatus. Yeah. He's going to put it all together. And I told people early in the year, Clay not going to be that guy off rip. It's going to take time, maybe even next year. And for a while, he wasn't that guy. He picked it up later, having these 30 points. But I still feel like even, the, even though he's got 30-plus point performances this season to end the regular year, it just hasn't felt the same. It's a lot mm-hmm. of volume. It's been a lot of inconsistencies. Um, defensively, I think he's able to hang in there, but you could tell you've been out for two years with, with leg injuries, not going to be able to hang with guys. And the biggest thing with the Warriors is they're still trying to adopt that small ball mentality. I just don't think that's the move long-term. And this Western Conference where all the teams we've talked about, maybe with the exception of Dallas, have bigs. And so you could play small all you want and hope that Draymond, who's older, and has faced some injuries this year, can hold up against Aiton, Towns, Jokic. You can do that, but eventually the wear and tear is going to prevail. And I feel like Golden State has enough to beat Denver because Denver is very Jokic-centric, and they have had a lot of injuries this year. Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray won't be playing. I think they'll beat them in six, but Memphis is another animal. They're number one in the league in rebounding. They're number one in the league in offensive rebounding. They crash the glass. They have bodies. They're young. They can play small. They can play big. They're tough. They go after you. They're not scared. And historically, the last few years, the team that has given the Warriors trouble in the West has been the Grizzlies. And this is the Grizzlies that were young and aren't what they are now, where everybody took the next step. So I say Golden State is probably the most overrated out West. I agree with those takes. Okay, all right. So, all right, for somebody that hasn't been up on basketball recently, you, you agreed on the takes I was spitting. So that's that is good indeed. Um, but before we wrap this up, Anaya, just talk about what you enjoyed about the pod, what you're looking forward to in the sports world, and what do you have coming on your platform that you're still working on? Um, what? Okay, what did I enjoy about this podcast first? Okay, yeah, you can take that first. Okay, um, I think just. I think your your knowledge within basketball, understanding that you did your research in terms of coming into this episode. So that was amazing just to see you in your element. Um, definitely keep it up. Um, something I'm excited about in the sports world. Ooh, 
that's really oh I know something I'm really excited about is that your alma mater Jackson State has had a WNBA player drafted um which I think is really really amazing because we hear different takes from people like Bomani Jones and all of these HBCU alums who don't support the idea of HBCU athletes going to a school and going to the league um and I think it's unfortunate that we have people with the ideology especially when in 1970 you know Grambling State sent the most NFL players to the league outside of Notre Dame so why can't we get back there um and I think we got to start being more optimistic so I think she is a step in the right direction and then something that we have going on with my podcast um really just kind of ramping up my episodes, trying to get it get it back right um, and drop a lot this summer. And um, I have a project coming up that is not directly connected to the um, podcast, but it has the same min- like mission of just kind of showing African-American students and necessary conversations that are happening with the sports departments at university. So stay tuned for that. Um, yeah, and you know, guys, you can follow me on all my platforms at Anaya Jones. The podcast is your wrong, sir, if you ought to subscribe. So feel free. Yeah, follow Anaya, man. She's got a great product that she's working on over there. Well, I'm your wrong, sir. And she's an individual that she's going places. Trust, like the talent's there. She's (laughs) she's versed. And for an individual that's not a multimedia journalism major like yourself, you you up there, man, like elite level (laughs) to where I'm like, she she a major. So now the, you're welcome, you're welcome. Now the HBCU tidbit from Bomani Jones, Jackson State, Amisha Williams, really getting into the league. I had the pleasure as an intern at Jackson State uh, Sports, you know, Jackson State Sports Media, I saw Amisha play live like a handful of times and she could play. Mm-hmm. And I think her being drafted to the Indiana Fever was huge because I think it's a reminder to everybody in the 21st century that you can go to an HBCU and get to the league. Yes. And when Travis Hunter decided to go to Jackson State University, number one recruit um, mm-hmm. out of the Georgia area, I saw a lot of individuals kind of be like, man, who transfer in two years? He ain't going to be there long. Or if he stays there, he's not going to get drafted into the league or he's not going to be able to go up against that elite talent that matters, that scout scout. So I was like, look, man, I'm going to be honest. When you're the number one recruit coming out of high school, you can play in Mars. It doesn't matter, bro. Like (laughs) the pipeline in the draft is, and I looked it up, every number one recruit in high school football history, they've been drafted in the league. Mm-hmm. No matter if they played, and a lot of these guys played at Florida and or these PWIs, and some of them didn't pan out, and they still got drafted. A great example is Robert and Kim Dice. He went to Ole Miss, underperformed there through his first three years, mm-hmm. and he got drafted second round to play with the Arizona Cardinals. So if Travis Hunter balls out and is all American and FCS first team All American twice in his three year tender, he's going in the first round, like because and I can't his name. Wait. All right. I can't wait to see it either. His name, his recognition, his mm-hmm. um first recruit brand from high school, that yeah. stays. Scouts follow that. And I think people don't realize a great example. Trevor Lawrence was scouted by NFL guys since he was in high school because mm-hmm. he was the number one quarterback recruit when he was a freshman in high school. And I think that's what everybody really doesn't understand. When you have that elite ranking aside you as a player, scouts don't leave. They don't disappear. They follow you wherever you go. And yep. wherever you decide to take your talents and you're able to replicate that play, you'll get that pro recognition that you deserve. But beyond Hunter, look, if you can play at a high level, you're going to go to the pros. And I think the issue was last year, especially in the NFL, when no HBCU talents got drafted, I just didn't feel like scouts came out with that fever to go down south and see guys play. 
like oh, they yeah. may have done. They definitely did it. Like they may have gone to a North Dakota state that's all the way up towards mm-hmm. Canada, but you don't want to go to Alabama state to see if a guy can play. And I think that was an issue. Obviously that would change this year because I think six to seven guys from HBCU football programs will get drafted. But the narrative that Bomani Jones put out, I just think it's unfair and it's not realistic because if you can play, they'll find you. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you go. And we tend to forget at times that HBCUs laid the foundation to these pro leagues. Exactly. And, and all that has to happen for that to continue at a high level is players coming out of high school just got to believe, hey, I can go to a culture that aligns with who I'm cool with, who I want to be, that can help build me into the person I want to and still get to the league because my talent stands tall, mm-hmm. um, film stands tall as well. And all it takes is for an organization to believe in me and give me a chance. And so I think that narrative of if you go to a HBCU or a school that's not a PWI, Power 5 football conference, you can't make it out and go league. It's crazy because we Mm -hmm. have too many examples all across the league where that's not the case. And I'm hope that that narrative changes moving forward. And obviously, Deion coming to Jackson State helps. And I think more transfers going to other HBCUs will help that cause because eventually – the talent is going to speak for itself. I agree. But with that, guys, it's the end of episode 50. It was a great episode. I'm going to drop this tonight, so you guys stay tuned. I'll be back next week for episode 51 as we close in on the NFL draft, so I'll have some NFL draft content there. It's great to have Anaya on, Thank and you. it was great to put this out. So enjoy this listen. Peace. See ya.